On that note, we'll go ahead and get started. We are going to be continuing in our series in Genesis, and uh, we're going to be reading from chapter 7. So if you're physically able, if I could ask you to stand with me, and I'll read this morning's scripture for us. I'm going to be reading actually from chapter 7, verse 6 through 24 through the end of the chapter. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and everything that creeps on the ground. Two by two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. After seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month and on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons were with them, with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two by two of all flesh in which there was a breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole earth were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swam on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in those nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of heavens of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Um, thank you for the gift of being in your presence this morning. We thank you for the gift of your word, Lord. And there's sometimes when we approach your word and it is just filled with obvious hope and encouragement and it brings an immediate sense of freedom and relief. And there's other times when we approach your word and it seems to communicate a sense of dread to us. And we know that's how we understand your word and how we approach it, Lord, more than it's your word yourself. We know that it's good and true and beautiful and right. And so as we consider this very weighty and serious narrative that it lays before us in Genesis 7, I pray that you would challenge us, that you would challenge our faith, that you would challenge our assumptions about you and what you're like and what you do and how you do it. But you would also encourage us, Lord, to see that you are a God who is perfect in all of your ways and that what brings you glory is always for our good, even when it's something as serious as the flood in your judgment. It's in your son's name that we pray. 
Amen. Please be seated. Well, before Rob showed me his test results, I began to think that he was just making me teach all the hardest chapters in the beginning of Genesis here. My last sermon was the first human murder, and now I'm preaching on the flood. Uh, I was thinking about this sermon and, and uh, the text itself, and one of the things that I began thinking about was I'm a big fan of World War II history. And uh, during the opening uh, months and weeks of World War II, as it unfolded in Europe, there was a group of uh, people, there was a perspective in the United States that was called isolationism. And essentially what it was, was there was a viewpoint that the United States should not get involved in the war uh, and that they should avoid the conflict really at all costs. And that view persisted until uh, the war became so great in scope that finally Japan attacked uh, the naval base at Pearl Harbor. And it became this turning point, whether anyone liked it or not, that the United States had to act. They had to intervene. They found themselves entering into the war, uh, both in the Pacific against Japan and in the European campaign uh, against Germany and Italy. Now, that, that made me think about uh, this text. So often, if we just drop into Genesis 7 and read this chapter on its own, it can fill us with a lot of questions that may go unanswered in uh, why God does what He does in pronouncing and carrying out this judgment and what it means uh, about Him and His nature and what it means for us as people that He's created. But we need to understand in its larger context. Um, what we find if we drop into this, you know, as Rob uh, mentioned, I'm not going to make an apologetic for the worldwide flood. I think Rob did a great job of addressing that last week. But what we do find is that this uh, judgment account, the flood in Genesis chapter 7, is the most universal and severe act of direct judgment that God performs in the Old Testament. Uh, there's other significant ones, but there's no other event that's as universal as this one in the entire Old Testament. It's very severe. It's very serious. Uh, and the uninformed person, the person who doesn't know the larger story of Scripture, can walk away thinking, well, God, He must be an angry God who enjoys judging and punishing people and seeing humanity suffer. Uh, but when we think about this as a larger part of what God's been doing, both in the chapters that we've studied and what we're going to continue to study in coming weeks, is that we'll see that God uh, really is serious about who He is and helping us understand who He is, but also about the fact that He intervenes into our plight, uh, especially as we've seen in last week and what we'll see this morning, when it becomes so severe that nothing else will help except His direct intervention. Uh, so, a couple of things that I want us to consider together. I want us to consider that Genesis 7 actually communicates uh, for us the need for God to judge sin. It's just an unfortunate reality that can make us uncomfortable sometimes. Uh, second, that God has the right to judge everything that He's created. That includes us as humanity. Uh, and third, that God always, always offers mercy along with that. So, the main idea that I'm thinking about here is that even when we see God's judgment of sin, we can understand that He's just, but He's also merciful. So first point, by way, of, uh, by way of review, I want us to think about the fact that man's sinfulness necessitates God's judgment. 
<clears throat> thinking about large picture here in the last six chapters that we've studied uh, as we've done this series in the, in the opening portion of Genesis, uh, the best way to understand chapter 7 is in light of what precedes it. If you recall, um, when Rob started out the series, and even when I taught on Genesis 4 and the conflict between Cain and Abel, re really what we talked about is this cosmic conflict that was unfolding uh, from the beginning of creation. That the, Really, what we're talking about is the story of two kingdoms that are vying for power and control in the world, one an evil kingdom that comes by way of Satan and through the sinfulness in Adam's heart, and the other one that comes by way of God's plan of redemption and through the people that he preserves even in an evil world. And so by the time we get to chapter 7 from Genesis 1-1, what do we see here? In 6 and 7, we see that the sin that was planted in Adam's heart and the sin that began to creep into the world has generationally corrupted the entire world. Uh, generation after generation has turned away from their creator and begun to worship themselves and give themselves over to sin. And that's especially true in this section that we've been studying last week and this week in 6 and 7. Uh, oftentimes when you talk to people who are unfamiliar with Scripture, they'll be familiar with this particular story. And they will think, well, God must be judgmental and unfair. But, you know, God's judgment never drops out of the sky for no reason at all, pun intended there. Um, God's judgment never comes for no reason at all when it intervenes into humanity. Um, when we think about Genesis 6, what we studied last week, and then we consider God's judgment in Genesis 7, what do we see? Uh, we see the account of humanity letting evil reign in its hearts and all over creation to the point where unchecked destruction begins to become the norm. Uh, despite the fact that God's common grace has been extended to all of humanity, even it's in its rebellion against Him, uh, it still continues to openly sin and to mock God and to reject Him. Um, humanity spirals into this prolonged de-evolution into wickedness uh, to the point where it loses its ability to see and comprehend God and who He is and what is good and right according to God's will. If you were here last week, uh, Genesis 6-5 actually makes this statement to this end. It says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You see, he's saying that it's not just that man struggles with sin and battles against it and goes back and forth. He's conflicted in his heart. Uh, what Genesis 6 tells us is that we no longer are able to see and even acknowledge God as creator and see that he is worthy of worship and that living life according to his design is actually a good thing. Uh, when humanity falls into generational corruption and gives itself over to the wickedness that can reign in their hearts and in their lives, we begin to see common grace as something to be disregarded and mocked. And we begin to think that we actually know what's good and right and true. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul talks about this. You know, in Romans 1, he gives one of 
the most stinging descriptions of what happens when man is enslaved to sin. He goes on to describe the nature of fallen humanity, and he says that it's not just that we become consumed by evil. We actually begin to think that evil is good. And it's not just that we can no longer tell what is evil and what is good, what is right and what is wrong, but we actually begin to see evil in others as being a good thing. And we not only condone it, but we encourage it. And furthermore, when people do do right in the sight of God, we see that as something to be rejected in and of itself. Uh, if you think about your own life, if you're here and, um, and you have been saved by your faith in Christ, you can see the same spiritual principle in reverse. It's a really interesting thing that I've learned in my own faith journey and that I've seen in many other people's. Uh, oftentimes, many of us will have this point of contention where the Spirit of God makes known to us some aspect of just how sinful we are. And it brings us to that point of contact where we really truly understand how desperately we need the mercy of God that's offered through Jesus. And we latch on to that. And that's, only, that's a supernatural act, the act that only happens through the mercy of God intervening in our lives. But what I've found almost to a person is that as we grow in our understanding of who God is and what He's like and the nature of our sin and the way that God works to redeem that, we grow in this understanding of just how sinful we actually were when God saved us and just how incapable we were of doing anything about that on our own. Furthermore, the more we grow in understanding God's grace, we also are able to see and come to grips with just how much we deserved God's judgment. And, you know, we can only see that in hindsight looking back, but God makes that known to us. He reveals that to us as we grow in our faith. And it brings us to the point where we have a greater understanding of just how patient and merciful God is. Now, when we understand that on one side and then we consider God's right to judge on the other, they become more balanced in our mind and we're able to see how God has the right to choose to do both of those things. But it's only by understanding His mercy in conjunction with His right to judge that we're able to understand that and perceive how He does that in the world. Uh, you see, it's not only that sin in humanity necessitates uh, the judgment of God. I think the thing that probably challenges us the most about this text is that God is actually just and has the right to do it. That's the second thing that I want us to consider here. You know, one of the most weighty and disturbing truths for me, and I think for many Christians, as they grow in their understanding of God's character and His will is the fact that God is perfectly holy, that He's perfectly righteous, and that He's perfectly just in all His judgments. And an outworking of those characteristics of His nature is to intervene and to restore the moral order of His creation. It's just a natural outworking of His character. Uh, when wicked humanity persists in sin to the point where common grace is openly mocked and rejected. Uh, and His work upon the earth is actually viewed as something that's being oppressive, as being oppressive and evil, and it's rejected itself. Uh, God must act. It's just consistent with His nature. 
in the way in Genesis 7 that we see God intervening can be very shocking to our very modern, individualistic, and very inflated self-view of what we think right and wrong is. Uh, but the way that he intervenes in this account is actually really fascinating if you think about it in context of the larger drama that's unfolding here. Uh, think about this with me for a minute. In Genesis 1, when we read the creation account, what does God do? Uh, he takes all of creation, and He describes it as being formless and void, and He separates the waters above from the waters below, and He marks out the land and the earth in a way that people are able to exist, and then He sets out and He creates man in His own image, and He gives him life. Uh, he creates animal life, and He gives them the ability to live and to flourish and live in a way that glorifies Him, to live in a relationship with Him. Seven chapters later, what do we see God doing in this judgment? There's a sense in which God is decreating everything that's gone so far astray from His design uh, that He tears it all down. See, He takes the same water that He used and separated to create markers for creation, and He brings it as a, a tool of His judgment on wicked humanity, right? He brings water from above and water from below. He takes man himself, who was created in his own image. There's a sense in which he actually decreates man. He preserves animal life, and he preserves Noah and his family, but he removes that gift of life to the majority of humanity in this judgment. You know, I was thinking about this, and it was hard to come up with a good analogy for us, but a simple analogy that may be helpful that I was thinking about uh, comes from the construction world, you know, the analogy of a own home that needs to be restored. Uh, sometimes when a house gets so old, it can suffer from things like water damage uh, inside the walls that are, it's there and it's happening, but you don't see it until the entire structure is, is flooded and uh, ruined. Sometimes it happens uh, from mold, something that you don't see until it's affecting you. And uh, sometimes it can happen from asbestos, asbestos contamination, which is something that they used to use in older houses that's actually toxic for the human body. And uh, what a contractor will do is they'll come into an old old house and they'll identify what the problem is, and they'll do something that's called stripping it down to the studs. So they'll take this whole structure and they'll take everything apart They'll rip everything off of the house except for the foundation and the framework. And then what they set out to do is they use that foundation and they rebuild this structure into something that's an inhabitable dwelling place for the people that are going to live there, a safe place for them to dwell. In this judgment, as severe as it is, I think that God is doing the same thing. He's taking creation and He's stripping it down to the very foundations so that He can preserve his order and design of creation and humanity so that he could start over in a sense. Um, you know, as Chuck was talking about the reading of the law, he started out by highlighting the fact that uh, what we hate most is the idea that we don't have the final one say in uh, what we think is right and what God should do, and that's a very humbling reality for us. If we think about it in the context of God preserving His design for us, for humanity, for His creation, for a good and redemptive purpose, it gives us the ability to understand that what He's doing, even in these very severe judgments, is actually a good thing. As disturbing as it is when we consider things as intense as the loss of life. 
in my own interactions with people, both Christians and non-Christians, two things that I've realized. There's typically two critiques that arise out of thinking about uh, stories like this in Scripture. Uh, it's not uncommon when I talk to Christians that they have a misunderstanding that typically will arise out of their lack of understanding of God's righteousness and the fact that He has a right to judge creation. And until we learn and understand what God's nature is like, that He's the author of creator of everything that exists, including us and all of humanity, we struggle to see and understand how He could have the right to judge uh, sinful man. Uh, I think one of the things I've also learned in conversations with people is that it also uh, comes out of a lack of a healthy sense and understanding of the awe and reverence for God as being a completely holy being who we're actually accountable to as a part of His creation. When I've spoken to non-believers and atheists, uh, at least the ones that are honest and want to engage, I've found that uh, a misunderstanding about God's righteousness and His judgment comes out of this twisted sense of self-autonomy that we have as individuals. And again, Chuck talked about that. We're even susceptible to that as Christians. We're much more autonomous in our thought life and how we live than we'd ever like to admit. But especially for people that reject the idea of a God that's created them, this can be very uh, overwhelming in the way that they view things like God's righteousness and His judgment. If a person believes that they're self-autonomous, what do they inherently believe uh, in that worldview? Uh, that they're the highest authority in their own life. And if they're the highest authority in their own life, they cannot accept the idea that they're accountable to something greater than themselves. And even people who are honest enough to admit that there may be something greater than them that exists in the universe somewhere, they certainly can't accept the idea that that God can dictate how they live. And when they approach a story like this, they cannot accept the fact that God will not accept human beings for living in a way that they think is best. What I found uh, in evangelizing and sharing the gospel with people and interacting with atheists and agnostics alike is that underneath all of that, uh, what fallen humanity rejects the most is the idea that there's a God who created them. Because if they accept the idea that there's a God who created them, that means that that God actually has a say in how they live and what they do. And that means that they're accountable to Him. In Noah's day, the entire earth was filled with people that believed that they were self-autonomous. So much so that seeing somebody like Noah and his family walking by faith, building this ark, was something to be mocked and ridiculed and rejected. If sin is what God says it is in Scripture, and it is, if it's as destructive and corrupting as God says it is in Scripture, then it's actually inhumane for Him not to do something about it. If we come away with anything in regards to understanding God's judgment, it's this. It's that if sin is as dangerous as God says it is, for him not to act would be irresponsible and uncaring if he's the only one that can actually do something about it.
a lot of times, and many of you will experience this if you haven't already, a lot of times people will raise what are very genuine and authentic questions that are valid questions about why God allows uh, people to suffer and be affected by sin to the extent that he does, about why God interacts and pronounces such severe judgment at certain points in Scripture. And those are very genuine questions that people will ask you, and they deserve an answer. The best question that I think that Scripture poses in this story is why God chooses to save anybody at all. If we're as corrupted by sin as God says we are, why does God choose to save any of us at all? And that's the last thing that I want us to consider, that e even in God's judgment, there's this confounding reality that He still chooses to offer mercy to fallen humanity. Uh, I've alluded to this already, but I think oftentimes one of the biggest things that's missed in discussions around this account is that even in judgment, God offers sinners a way out. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 9, he describes God as being patient and long-suffering and that his will is actually that nobody should perish, perish, but that they should repent and turn to God. That was true in Noah's day. We see that through God's work in the life of Noah, but that's also true for us uh, in our day as well. When we think about the life of Noah, uh, his life and his faith served as a warning to wicked humanity, that there was a judgment and that it was coming for all of humanity. Uh, but that through repentance, that they could turn to God and they would receive mercy. Uh, God's mercy is also offered through the testimony of Noah's faith in following him and doing what he said. A lot of the times people will read Genesis 6 and 7, they'll wonder, well, you know, I see these ways that Scripture talks about Noah, that he was this righteous guy and he found favor with God, and I guess he must have just been a special kind of Christian. Uh, and that's not the case. There's really no mystery here. The author of Hebrews uh, describes the very thing that makes Noah righteous in God's eyes. In 11.7, he says, it was by faith that Noah built a large boat to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God who warned him about the things that had never happened before. And by faith, Noah condemned the rest of the world, and he received the righteousness that comes by faith. When Genesis 6 describes Noah as being righteous, what it means is that he was a man who was aware of his need for mercy. Full stop. Psalm 32 describes the righteous man as the man who is aware of his own sinfulness and turns to God and confesses his sinfulness before him and seeks God's mercy, and he, describe, and he receives it, and he is described as the righteous man in God's sight. Uh, when Noah is described as a man who found favor with God, it doesn't mean that he was better than you and I, or though he may have been a better carpenter with the ark that he built, what it means is that he received God's grace. That's all that that means. When he turned to God and sought God's mercy, he received the grace of God that was offered to him. Noah believed that God's warning of judgment on humanity was real and that it was coming. Uh, 
By his faith, he also believed in the promise that God gave him to deliver him. One of the things that I've grown to love about uh, God's mercy is that it is so generous that he will make the promise to save us if we turn to him. And then he actually gives us the faith that we need to believe in that promise because that's something that we cannot do on our own. And then he doubles down on his mercy and he blesses us with salvation by believing in that promise that he's made to us. If that's not the best deal in town, I don't know what is. That's what we see in the life of Noah. It's what we see in the life of every person who has turned to God and repented or turned away from their sin and turned to God asking for his forgiveness. Is that first he reveals the reality of their fallen nature to them. Second, he gives them the supernatural faith that it takes to believe in the promise that he makes to save them if they repent. And then he blesses them as a result of them doing what only he could give him, them the power to do. Um, you know, when we read about God bringing judgment on earth, uh, it's shocking to our spiritual and emotional equilibrium, right? It's totally okay to say that. And regardless of whether you've been a Christian for six months or 60 years, when we really consider the implications of what happens here in the flood and God's judgment being brought on earth, it's shocking to our equilibrium. When I was sitting and writing this sermon, uh, there's two things that came to mind that disturbed me perhaps more than any other about this, uh, one in a good way and one in a not-so-good way. First, in a very positive and healthy sense, uh, reading this story and thinking about this um, disturbed me because it reminded me that God's judgment is not only just, but it's real and it's true and it's going to come to pass. It did in Noah's day, and as we read Scripture until Revelation, it's going to come again. We see that in the first and the second coming of Jesus. Um, in that judgment, at Jesus' return will be uh, complete and total and final for people who persist in rejecting him, just as it was in Noah's day. The second thing is not, it's, it's disturbing in not such a good way. And look, before I say this, I'm preaching to myself before anybody else. Uh, there was this famous magician slash comedy act that used to be around. I'm probably dating myself like I always do. Uh, called Penn and Teller, and if you're older, you probably know about them. But uh, Penn, one of the guys in the duo, was a really uh, famous and outspoken atheist. But he was also unusual in that he was uh, he was an atheist who was very articulate and very uh, intellectually honest. And he would share this story about um, being at a show one night with his partner. As the show completed, a Christian man came up to him and engaged him. In conversation, the man began to thank him for the show and tell him how much he enjoyed it. And it turns out that the guy was a Christian, and so he began to talk to him about his faith, and he gave uh, Penn a copy of the New Testament and the Psalms, and then he just shared the gospel with him in a gracious and winsome way. But he talked about the reality that God will one day judge, but that there's a way for people to escape that judgment through faith in Jesus. 
And Penn would go on to say one of the things that he um, grew most um, confused by was the hypocritical nature of Christians. Uh, and he would explain the fact that if a professing Christian truly believes that God has the right to judge and that He will judge and that things like heaven and hell truly exist, it would be unconscionable for a Christian to not share that with somebody who they think is on their way to judgment. And you know what? He's right, 100%. And what disturbed me when I thought about this is the apathy that you and I are so prone to have about difficult parts of Scripture like this and sharing the reality behind them. And again, I'm preaching to myself first. Uh, it shocks me that I can still display an apathy to not warn people that there's a real judgment waiting for them, and more importantly, that there's a way out from that judgment. Uh, the, author of the offer of deliverance that God made to Noah by faith for humanity in his day was real and true, and it happened for Noah and his family. That offer is still valid today. Uh, if you're familiar with the life and work of Christ, if it tells us anything, it tells us that God's offer of mercy is true and real and available today, right? Um, the evil that existed in Noah's day exists in the world that we live in today. I think oftentimes we get so acclimatized to the culture that surrounds us, we forget that many of the things that existed in Noah's day exist right outside our front door. We live in a world that sees what is evil and practices it and promotes it and calls it good and even sees what God says is good as being oppressive and judgmental and bigoted and unreasonable and persecutes those that practice it. That was true then and it's true now. But as I said, the promise that God offers in saving people if they turn to Him and seek His mercy is also available to us in our day. Uh, in Scripture, there's these points where uh, if you've been with us for a while, uh, you'll recall that Rob talked about this. There's these points where God brings judgment to earth in a very pronounced way. And sometimes scholars and the prophets, they get it from the prophets, will call this the day of the Lord. And it's these very intense moments where heaven breaks into earth and God's perfect righteousness and justice breaks into earth. And we see that touched down into creation at different points throughout redemptive history. Uh, this is one of those accounts. If you read Revelation, that's the final experience of the day of the Lord visiting creation where God will once and for all judge all of creation. Uh, one that I think a lot of us underestimate the value of is the fact that God's judgment also visits earth in Christ's crucifixion. And that's how this offer of mercy is available to you and I and to anybody that doesn't know Him today. The fact that God felt so compelled in His holiness and His righteousness and His mercy to intervene, to come and to take on human flesh and live among fallen humanity and then give Himself as a means for people to experience God's mercy is this beautiful picture 
of God exacting the judgment for our sins on His Son in our place. And so at the cross, we see God's judgment perfectly displayed on His Son. And we also see His mercy made available to us by faith in a way that we could not create on our own. Now, when I think about the gospel in those terms, it makes me excited to share it with people. Uh, If we just whip out Genesis 7 and say, yo, check it out, man. There was a flood, and when God wraps things up, you're going to be in bad shape, so I hope it works out. That's no gospel at all, right? But when we're able to share with people, yes, God did create us. And yes, as hard as it is to consider, God has the right to judge us as a part of his creation. And you know what God did about it? He intervened on your behalf. He gave his son so that you could receive the mercy that is only available through him. And the judgment that you and I deserve, his son took for us. And by faith in him, we have the peace of God. And not only that, we have the privilege of sharing that same offer of mercy with people who don't know him. For you and I, as people who know Jesus, what does that mean for how we should think about life and how we should live? Uh, Living in light of the reality of God as a God who has the right to judge and will one day, and that He's also a God of mercy, means a couple of different things. Uh, First, it means that you and I should grow in a healthy hatred for sin and the destruction that it causes in the world. Second, it means that we should grow in our love for holiness and the righteousness of God because that glorifies Him. And uh, finally, it means that you and I should grow in our desire uh, to share the mercy of God that's offered only in the gospel uh, with people who live in very real danger of judgment. It's a privilege that we have. It's a responsibility that we're called to. And it's one of the ways that we could share the love of Christ with a world that doesn't even know what the love of God looks like. Amen? Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this day. We thank you, uh, we thank you that uh, on days like today when we encounter such weighty parts of your word, um, that they're embedded and perfectly intertwined uh, with all the parts of your nature and your will, that you are perfectly just, and that's a good thing, that you have promised to judge sin, and that's a good thing, uh, that you have promised to intervene on our behalf, and that's, that's a wonderful thing, and that you've given all of us a way that we can be reconciled to you and have peace with you through your Son. And uh, Father, I pray that as we consider how that is changed our past and our present and our future as people that you have saved, that we would come away with an overwhelming sense of gratitude and a deeper desire to share the gospel with those that don't know you. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.